to episode 17 of Life and Life Only, and this is a reading of the book, very short book in fact, War is a Racket, written by Major General Smedley Darlington Butler. I'll also be reading The War Prayer by Mark Twain, which goes back to 1904 and was included in the version of the War is a Racket book that I've got here. So I'm just going to read a short introduction and I may or may not be interjecting at various times. I think the book really speaks for itself, to be honest. The issue of war, it's all around us. It, you know, For anyone listening to this really in our lifetimes, it's always been there. I mean, it's been there since the, the dawn of man, you could argue. And um, it's obviously a, a political issue. I mean, I've, I've met a lot of people in my life. I've never met anyone who actually thought war was a good thing per se, you know, morally, ethically. Although, of course, you people will say that, um, you know, for example, Second World War, morally or ethically, it was correct to stop Adolf Hitler. And I'm not here to argue against that. But as you will uh, understand when I start reading this book, war is a business. And the ethical or moral reasons for it are probably sidelined justifications. There's all kinds of um, history, you can call it revisionist history, which I don't mean as a negative thing at all, because history is constantly being revised to do with the lead up to World War Two, And it's far too simple to say that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, which were originally the National Socialist Workers Party, were evil and in came Britain and the US and France, etc., as the good guys to wipe out this scourge of humanity. Some of that is true, but I'm just saying it's not as simple as that. Now, war as a political idea or political tactic, let's say, it's difficult to say that we should stop all wars now. Yes, that is a that would be a wonderful thing. But for example, if the US military suddenly decided to disband out of the blue, then it would be correct to think that uh, their enemies, let's say China, Russia, would absolutely capitalize on that. And that's the same the other way around. I mean, it's a bit different because America technically has control, even though they have a, a national debt, which is in the trillions and which you can actually monitor. I don't know exactly how accurate it is, but you can actually see by the second it's going up. So in some ways, they are, they are the poorest country in the world, but of course they have the collateral of their reputation, and also the biggest military in the world, and also the fact that uh, the US dollar is still the default currency, primarily for oil, the petrodollar. So it's somewhat naive to say that war can be stopped instantly. It would really need an accord by all parties, which is not going to happen. But anyway, I think just an understanding of it, first of all, what it actually is, according to Smedley Darlington Butler, and as you will hear in a minute, he had some knowledge of that, and he was very heavily involved in it. So anyway, this is War is a Racket, written in 1935 by Major Smedley Darlington Butler and read by Anthony Rutuno, July 2021. A racket is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as, quote, an illegal or dishonest scheme for obtaining money. The word is most commonly used when describing a protection racket as run by the Mafia.
Smedley Darlington Butler was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania in 1881 and educated at the Haverford School, also in Pennsylvania. He was a Major General in the US Marine Corps, the highest rank authorised at that time, and was at the time of his death the most decorated Marine in US history. During his 34-year career as a Marine, he participated in military actions in the Philippines, China and Central America and the Caribbean during the Banana Wars and France in World War I. By the end of his career, Butler had received 16 medals, five for heroism. He's one of only 19 men to twice receive the Medal of Honor, one of only three to be awarded both the Marine Corps Brevet Medal and the Medal of Honor, and the only Marine to be awarded the Brevet Medal and two Medals of Honor, all for separate actions. Butler is well known for having later become an outspoken critic of US wars and their consequences, and in 1933 he became involved in a controversy known as the Business Plot, when he told a congressional committee that a group of wealthy industrialists were planning a military coup to overthrow then-US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, with Butler selected to lead a march of veterans to become dictator, similar to other fascist regimes at that time. The individuals involved all denied the existence of a plot, and the media of the time ridiculed the allegations. A final report by a special House of Representatives committee confirmed some of Butler's testimony. You can find the business plot, in fact, on Wikipedia. And people say about Wikipedia, of course, it's random because technically anyone can write it. But it does tend to take the establishment line and will dismiss as conspiracy theories anything that goes against that. So anyway, the business plot, it's out there on the record. Aside from his book, War is a Racket, Butler's most famous quote is the following. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers from 1902 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. So, as well as uh, recommending the book I'm about to read, I'd like to recommend the illustrated expose, Addicted to War, Why the US Can't Kick Militarism, by Joel Andreas. I think it originally came out in 2004, so it was just after the Iraq invasion, but he has apparently updated it in 2015, I think that was. That's a very readable. It's um, essentially a comic book, really. Although I don't want to trivialise it by calling it that. But yeah, it's uh, got pictures. There's also humour attached to it as well, which is sometimes needed when you're talking about this kind of thing. So anyway, let's get going with War is a Racket. Chapter 1. War is a Racket. It always has been. It's possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars, and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. 
Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during that war. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. And just as a side note, that's millionaires around the time of World War I, so over a hundred years ago. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they are victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its attendant miseries, backbreaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realise it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering, as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for this one unique occasion their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia complicated matters. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in. But France was waiting. So was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die, only those who ferment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. Hell's bells, are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they're being trained for. He at least is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said, And above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity, quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war. Anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the side of Hungary in the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that, and the hurried mobilisation of his troops on the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus showed it too. There are others in Europe too whose sabre-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler, with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal, if not greater, menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of military service for its youth from a year to 18 months. Yes, all over, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the manoeuvring is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked out our old friends the Russians and backed Japan. 
then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does the open door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about $90 million a year. Or the Philippine Islands, we spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years. And we, our bankers and industrialists and speculators, have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then, to save that China trade of about $90 million, or to protect these private investments of less than $200 million in the Philippines, we would be all stirred up to hate Japan and go to war. A war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made. Millions and billions of dollars would be piled up by a few. Munitions makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, speculators, they would fare well. Yes, they're getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who were killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? Yes, and what does it profit the nation? Take our own case. Until 1898, we didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time, our national debt was little more than $1 billion. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or shunted aside the advice of the father of our country. We forgot George Washington's warning about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory. At the end of the World War period, as a direct result of our fiddling in international affairs, our national debt had jumped to over $25 billion. Our total favourable trade balance during the 25-year period was about $24 billion. Therefore, on a purely bookkeeping basis, we ran a little behind year for year, and that foreign trade might well have been ours without the wars. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits, but the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. So just a quick note there, yeah, this is 1935, so the run-up to the Second World War, and it appears that there's some sort of denial that war is coming. And these numbers, I mean, incredible, $25 billion national debt. That's the end of the Second World War, so again, over 100 years ago. Quite incredible. And also the same arguments really happening. You know, the, the reason I'm reading this book is just, it's very, very concise, and in, despite the fact that, you know, it's, uh, what is it, coming up to 90 years ago that this was written, we're really having the same arguments. There's a theory, in fact, that if you look at any newspaper, well, I'd say from about the mid-20th century on, let's say a British newspaper, just for argument's sake, because I'm, I'm from England, you'll probably find more or less the same issues being talked about. It's quite amazing how it doesn't change. Anyway, chapter two, who makes the profits? The World War, by the way, he refers to World War One as the World War because, of course, it was the only one at that time. So if you hear me mention that, that's what we're talking about. So the World War, or rather our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some $52 billion. Figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman and child. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it. Our children are paying it, and our children's children probably still will be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, 
Ah, that is another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, and even 1800%. The sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It is dressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and, quote, we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the prophets jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's take just a few examples. Take our friends, the DuPonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war? Or saved the world for democracy? Or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 was $6 million a year. It wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit, we find. Nearly 10 times that of normal times. And the profits of normal times were pretty good. An increase in profits of more than 950%. Take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials. With their 1910 to 1914 yearly earnings averaged $6 million. Then came the war, and like loyal citizens, Bethlehem Steel promptly turned to munitions making. Did their profits jump or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 to 1918 average was $49 million a year. Well, let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings during the five-year period prior to the war were $105 million a year. Not bad. Then along came the war and up went the profits. The average yearly profit for the period 1914 to 1918 was $240 million. Not bad. There you have some of the steel and powder earnings. Let's look at something else. A little copper, perhaps. That always does well in war times. Anaconda, for instance. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years 1910 to 1914 of $10 million. During the war years 1914 to 1918, profits leapt to $34 million a year. Or Utah copper. Average of $5 million per year during the 1910 to 1914 period jumped to an average of $21 million yearly profits for the war period. Let's group these five with three smaller companies. The total yearly average profits of the pre-war period 1910 to 1914 were $137,480,000. Then along came the war. The average yearly profits for this group skyrocketed to 408,300,000. Does war pay? It paid them. But they aren't the only ones, there are still others. Let's take leather. For the three year period before the war, the total profits of Central Leather Company were $3,500,000. That was approximately $1,167,000 a year. Well, in 1916, Central Leather returned a profit of $15 million, a small increase of 1,100%. That's all. The General Chemical Company averaged a profit for the three years before the war of a little over $800,000 a year. Came the war and the profits jumped to $12 million, a leap of 1,400%. International Nickel Company, and you can't have a war without nickel, showed an increase in profits from a mere average of $4 million a year to $73 million a year, an increase of more than 1,700%. American Sugar Refining Company averaged $2 million a year for the three years before the war. In 1916, a profit of $6 million was recorded. Listen to Senate document number 259, the 65th Congress reporting on corporate earnings and government revenues. 
Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, and 340 coal producers during the war. Profits under 25% were exceptional. For instance, the coal companies made between 100% and 7,856% on their capital stock during the war. The Chicago Packers doubled and tripled their earnings. And let us not forget the bankers who financed the Great War. If anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers. Being partnerships rather than incorporated organisations, they did not have to report to stockholders, and their profits were as secret as they were immense. How the bankers made their millions and their billions I do not know, because those little secrets never became public, even before a Senate investigatory body. But here's how some of the other patriotic industrialists and speculators chiselled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on sales abroad to our allies. Perhaps, like the munitions manufacturers and armament makers, they also sold to the enemy. For a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from Germany or from France. But they did well by Uncle Sam too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 35 million pairs of hobnailed service shoes. There were 4 million soldiers, 8 pairs and more, to a soldier. My regiment during the war had only one pair to a soldier. Some of these shoes probably are still in, in existence. They were good shoes, but when the war was over, Uncle Sam had a matter of 25 million pairs left over, bought and paid for, profits recorded and pocketed. There was still lots of leather left, so the leather people sold your Uncle Sam hundreds and thousands of McClellan saddles for the cavalry, but there wasn't any American cavalry overseas. Somebody had to get rid of this leather, however. Somebody had to make profit in it, so we had a lot of McClellan saddles, and we probably have those yet. Also, somebody had a lot of mosquito netting. They sold your Uncle Sam 20 million mosquito nets for the use of the soldiers overseas. I suppose the boys were expected to put it over them as they tried to sleep in muddy trenches, one hand scratching cooties on their backs and the other making passes at scurrying rats. Well, not one of these mosquito nets ever got to France. Anyhow, these thoughtful manufacturers wanted to make sure that no soldier would be without his mosquito net, so 40 million additional yards of mosquito netting were sold to Uncle Sam. There were pretty good profits in mosquito netting in those days, even if there were no mosquitoes in France. I suppose if the war had lasted just a little longer, the enterprising mosquito netting manufacturers would have sold your Uncle Sam a couple of consignments of mosquitoes to plant in France so that more mosquito netting would be in order. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt they too should get their just profits out of this war. Why not? Everybody else was getting theirs. So one billion dollars count them if you live long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the ground. Not one plane or motor out of the billion dollars worth ordered ever got into a battle in France. Just the same, the manufacturers made their little profit of 30, 100 or perhaps 300%. Undershirts for soldiers cost 14 cents to make and Uncle Sam paid 30 to 40 cents each for them. A nice little profit for the undershirt manufacturer and the stocking manufacturer and the uniform manufacturers and the cap manufacturers and the steel helmet manufacturers all got theirs. Why, when the war was over, some four million sets of equipment, knapsacks and the things that go to fill them, crammed warehouses on this side. Now they're being scrapped because the regulations have changed the contents, but the manufacturers collected their wartime profits on them, and they will do it all over again the next time. Just a quick note before I go on. Of course there is the argument that someone has to produce for example, the uniforms and the boots, etc., and uh, the munitions. So I don't think it's it's evil, per se, to be the person to produce those, but what he's implying here is that there's a lot of overproduction, 
perhaps deliberate overproduction. With all these things, the argument is always about how deliberate these things are. But I think the fact that the overall idea of war and the bankers, I, I think we've seen evidence that they finance both sides of wars. I mean, there's no accident in that, let's be honest. And um, interesting to, to read about these profit markups. You know, obviously sweatshops nowadays, their markups absolutely dwarf these. Carrying on, there were lots of brilliant ideas for profit making during the war. One very versatile patriot sold Uncle Sam 12 dozen 48-inch wrenches. Oh, they were very nice wrenches. The only trouble was that there was only one nut ever made that was large enough for these wrenches. That is the one that holds the turbines at Niagara Falls. Well, after Uncle Sam had bought them and the manufacturer had pocketed the profit, the wrenches were put on freight cars and shunted all over the United States in an effort to find a use for them. When the armistice was signed, it was indeed a sad blow to the wrench manufacturer. He was just about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. Then he planned to sell these too to your Uncle Sam. Still another had the brilliant idea that colonels shouldn't ride in automobiles, nor should they even ride on horseback. One has probably seen a picture of Andy Jackson riding in a buckboard, where some 6,000 buckboards were sold to Uncle Sam for the use of colonels. Not one of them was used, but the buckboard manufacturer got his war profit. The shipbuilders felt they should come in on some of it too. They built a lot of ships that made a lot of profit, more than $3 billion worth. Some of the ships were all right but $635 million worth of them were made of wood and wouldn't float. The seams opened up and they sank. We paid for them though, and somebody pocketed the profits. It has been estimated by statisticians and economists and researchers that the war cost your Uncle Sam $52 billion. Of this sum, $39 billion was expended in the actual war itself. This expenditure yielded $16 billion in profits. That is how the 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got that way. This $16 billion profit is not to be sneezed at. It's quite a tidy sum, and it went to a very few. The Senate Committee probe of the munitions industry and its wartime profits, despite its sensational disclosures, hardly has scratched the surface. Even so, it has had some effect. The State Department has been studying, quote, for some time, methods of keeping out of war. The War Department suddenly decides it has a wonderful plan to spring. The administration names a committee, with the War and Navy Departments ably represented under the chairmanship of a Wall Street speculator to limit profits in wartime. To what extent isn't suggested? Hmm. Possibly the profits of 300 and 600 and 1,600% of those who turned blood into gold in the World War would be limited to some smaller figure. Apparently, however, the plan does not call for any limitation of losses, that is, the losses of those who fight the war. As far as I've been able to ascertain, there is nothing in the scheme to limit a soldier to the loss of but one eye or one arm, or to limit his wounds to one or two or three, or to limit the loss of life. There is nothing in this scheme, apparently, that says not more than 12% of a regiment should be wounded in battle, or that not more than 7% in division should be killed. Of course, the committee cannot be bothered with such trifling matters. So just a couple of um, comments. So he talks about the War Department, and of course... There was a minister for war, perhaps most famously John Profumo. Now, of course, it's called defence. You know, people make uh, jokes about peace bombs and things like that. By the way, it's good uh, that Butler is able to have a bit of a sense of humour here. and you, you can note the sarcasm, which I think in this case is very justified. By the way, if you listen to the Blue Suede Truths episode a couple of episodes ago, a couple of the things that we mentioned with anti-war songs were Us and Them by Pink Floyd. And I think when I did 
Truth Comedy many years ago with Julian Charles, same person of The Mind Renewed. We talked about Blackadder and uh, a mad field marshal sweeping the troops up. You know, they had like little toys of the, the troops and he was sweeping them into a dustpan. Anyway, let's carry on. Chapter 3. Who pays the bills? Who provides the profits? These nice little profits of 200, 100, 300, 1,500 and 1,800%. We all pay them in taxation. We paid the bankers their profits when we bought Liberty Bonds at $100 and sold them back at $84 or $86 to the bankers. These bankers collected $100 plus. It was a simple manipulation. The bankers controlled the security marts. It was easy for them to depress the price of these bonds. Then all of us, the people, got frightened and sold the bonds at $84 or $86. The bankers bought them. Then these same bankers stimulated a boom and government bonds went to par and above. Then the bankers collected their profits. But the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. On a tour of the country, in the midst of which I am at the time of this writing, I have visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. The very able chief surgeon at the government hospital at Milwaukee, where there are 3,800 of the living dead, told me that mortality among veterans is three times as great as among those who stayed at home. Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. There they were remoulded. They were made over. They were made to about face, to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder and through mass psychology they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or of being killed. Then suddenly we discharged them and told them to make another about face. This time they had to do their own readjustment without mass psychology, without officers' aid and advice, and without nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them anymore, so we scattered them about without any three-minute or liberty loan speeches or parades. Many, too many, of these fine young boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they cannot make that final about-face alone. In the government hospital in Marion, Indiana, 1,800 of these boys are in pens. 500 of them in a barracks with steel bars and wires all around outside the buildings and on the porches. These already have been mentally destroyed. These boys don't even look like human beings. Oh, the looks on their faces. Physically, they're in good shape. Mentally, they're gone. There are thousands and thousands of these cases, and more and more are coming in all the time. The tremendous excitement of the war, the sudden cutting off of that excitement. The young boys couldn't stand it. That's a part of the bill. So much for the dead. They've paid their part of the war profits. So much for the mentally and physically wounded, they're paying now their share of the war profits. But the others paid too. They paid with heartbreaks when they tore themselves away from their firesides and their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam, on which a profit had been made. They paid another part in the training camps where they were regimented and drilled while others took their jobs and their places in the lives of their communities. They paid for it in the trenches where they shot and were shot, where they were hungry for days at a time where they slept in the mud and the cold and in the rain, with the moans and the shrieks of the dying for a horrible lullaby. Please see Peter Jackson's great film, They Shall Not Grow Old, which really highlights the conditions in the trenches. But don't forget, the soldier paid part of the dollars and cents bill too. Up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system, and soldiers and sailors fought for money. During the Civil War, they were paid bonuses, in many instances, before they went into service. 
the government or states paid as high as $1,200 for an enlistment. In the Spanish-American War, they gave prize money. When we captured any vessels, the soldiers all got their share, at least they were supposed to. Then it was found that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping it, but conscripting, drafting the soldier anyway. Then soldiers couldn't bargain for their labour. Everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, all men are enamoured of decorations. They positively hunger for them. So by developing the Napoleonic system, the metal business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honour was handed out. It made enlistments easier. After the Civil War, no new medals were issued until the Spanish-American War. In the World War, we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. So vicious was this war propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamour to kill, 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 to kill the Germans. God is on our side. It is his will that the Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the Allies, to please the same God. That was a part of the general propaganda, built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was the, quote, war to end all wars. This was the, quote, war to make the world safe for democracy. Now, just a quick comment from me. The war to end all wars, that, that can have a couple of meanings. It might mean the only war, you know, because it's the war to make sure there aren't any future ones. But uh, I don't know if this meaning existed then. I Presumably it did, that the war to end all wars can also sound like something glorious. Yeah, the most amazing war you can imagine. And a great part of the propaganda is to do with glory, of course. In England, when the First World War was declared, there was a stampede to join up. The propaganda was amazing then. You know, we do live in a more cynical slash sceptical age. And I think that's a good thing because we are slowly cottoning on, a bit too slowly for my liking, but anyway. Carrying on. No one mentioned to our boys as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. No one told them that the ships on which they were going to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. They were just told it was to be a, quote, glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this munificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, and kill and kill and kill and be killed. But wait, half of that wage, just a little more than a riveter in a shipyard or a laborer in a munitions factory safe at home made in a day, was promptly taken from him to support his dependents so that they would not become a charge upon his community. Then we made him pay what amounted to accident insurance, something the employer pays for an enlightened state, and that cost him $6 a month. He had less than $9 a month now. Yeah, accident insurance, can you believe it? Anyway, then the most crowning insolence of all, he was virtually blackjacked into paying for his own ammunition, clothing and food by being made to buy liberty bonds. Most soldiers get no money at all on paydays. We made them buy Liberty Bonds at $100, and then we bought them back when they came back from the war and couldn't find work at $84 and $86. And the soldiers bought about $2 billion worth of these bonds. Yes, the soldier pays the greater part of the bill. His family pays too. They pay it in the same heartbreak that he does. As he suffers, they suffer. 
At night, as he lay in the trenches and watched shrapnel burst about him, they lay home in their beds and tossed sleeplessly. His father, his mother, his wife, his sisters, his brothers, his sons and his daughters. When he returned home minus an eye or minus a leg or with his mind broken, they suffered too, as much as and even sometimes more than he. Yes, and they too contributed their dollars to the profits made by the munitions makers and bankers and shipbuilders and manufacturers and the speculators. They too bought liberty bonds and contributed to the profit of the bankers after the armistice in the hocus-pocus of manipulated liberty bond prices. And even now the families of the wounded men and of the mentally broken and those who were never able to readjust themselves are still suffering and still paying. Chapter 4. How to smash this racket. Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay. But there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlays at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labour before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labour. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and the speculators be conscripted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers. Yes, and all generals and all admirals and all officers and all politicians and all government office holders, everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all these workers in industry and all our senators and governors and majors pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or of having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labour 30 days to think it over and you will find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket. That and nothing else. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. Capital still has some say, so capital won't permit the taking of profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds that those they elect to office shall do their bidding and not that of the profiteers. Another step necessary in this fight to smash the war racket is a limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared. A plebiscite not of all the voters, but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and dying. There wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76-year-old president of a munitions factory or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant, all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of war, voting on whether the nation should go to war or not. They never would be called upon to shoulder arms, to sleep in a trench and be shot. Only those who would be called upon to risk their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether the nation should go to war. There is ample precedent for restricting the voting to those affected. Many of our states have restrictions on those permitted to vote. In most, it's necessary to be able to read and write before you may vote. In some, you must own property. It would be a simple matter each year for the men coming of military age to register in their communities as they did in the draft during the World War and be examined physically. Those who could pass and who would therefore be called upon to bear arms in the event of war should be eligible to vote in a limited plebiscite. They should be the ones to have the power to decide, 
and not a Congress, few of whose members are within the age limit and fewer still of whom are in physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. A third step in this business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defence only. At each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, and there are always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are smart. They don't shout that we need a lot of battleships to war on this nation or that nation. Oh no, first of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you, the great fleet of this supposed enemy will strike suddenly and annihilate 125 million people. Just like that. Then they begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy? Oh my no. Oh no. For defence purposes only. Then, incidentally, they announce manoeuvres in the Pacific for defence. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, does this, any of this sound familiar? I, I, I can almost not stop myself laughing. America is menaced by a great power. You know, we had communists and then when uh, when the Berlin Wall fell at the end of the 80s, you might think, oh, there's going to be peace now. And suddenly there's terrorists. And again, not to say that there weren't communists then and terrorists now, but there's always need a boogeyman. This is both hilarious and tragic. Let's say hilariously tragic thing. Someone could be writing a thousand years ago. They'd probably say exactly the same thing as we're saying now, you know. It's always for defence, no matter your resources. You know, Iran is a huge threat to America, apparently. Anyway, let's carry on. The Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the manoeuvres be off the coast two or three hundred miles? Oh no, the manoeuvres will be 2,000, yes, perhaps even 3,500 miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course, will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores even as pleased as would be the residents of California were they to dimly discern through the morning mist the Japanese fleet playing at war games off Los Angeles. The ships of our navy, it can be seen, should be specifically limited by law to within 200 miles of our coastline. Had that been the law in 1898, the Maine would never have gone to Havana Harbour. She never would have blown up. There would have been no war with Spain with its attendant loss of life. 200 miles is ample, in the opinion of experts, for defence purposes. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coastline. Planes might be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast for purposes of reconnaissance, and the army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. To summarise, three steps must be taken to smash the war racket. We must take the profit out of war. We must permit the youth of the land who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be war. We must limit our military forces to home defence purposes. And this is the final chapter, chapter 5, To Hell With War. I'm not a fool as to believe that war is the thing of the past. I know the people do not want war, but there is no use of saying we cannot be pushed into another war. Looking back, Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916 on a platform that he had kept us out of war, and on the implied promise that he would keep us out of war. Yet five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. In that five-month interval, the people had not been asked whether they had changed their minds. The four million young men who put on uniforms and marched or sailed away were not asked whether they wanted to go forth to suffer and die. Then what caused our government to change its mind so suddenly? Money. An Allied Commission, it may be recalled, came over shortly before the war declaration and called on the President. The President summoned a group of advisers. The head of the Commission spoke. 
Stripped of its diplomatic language, this is what he told the President and its group. There's no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the Allies is lost. We now owe you, American bankers, American munitions makers, American manufacturers, American speculators, American exporters, five or six billion dollars. If we lose, and without the help of the United States we must lose, we, England, France and Italy, cannot pay back this money, and Germany won't. So, had secrecy been outlawed as far as war negotiations were concerned, and had the press been invited to be present at that conference, or had radio been available to broadcast the proceedings, America never would have entered the World War. But this conference, like all war discussions, was shrouded in utmost secrecy. When our boys were sent off to war, they were told it was a war to make the world safe for democracy, and a war to end all wars. Well, 18 years after, the world has less of democracy than it had then. Besides, what business is it of ours, whether Russia or Germany or England or France or Italy or Austria, live under democracies or monarchies, whether they are fascists or communists? Our problem is to preserve our own democracy. War to make the world safe for democracy. Yep, still talking about that. And where he says, you know, what business is it of ours? He's talking about Russia, Germany, England. You know, what about the Middle East as well? And very little, if anything, has been accomplished to assure us that the World War was really the war to end all wars. Yes, we have had disarmament conferences and limitations of arms conferences. They don't mean a thing. One has just failed. The results of another have been nullified. We send our professional soldiers and our sailors and our politicians and our diplomats to these conferences. And what happens? The professional soldiers and sailors don't want to disarm. No admiral wants to be without a ship. No general wants to be without a command. Both mean men without jobs. They are not for disarmament. They cannot be for limitations of arms. And at all these conferences, lurking in the background but all powerful just the same, are the sinister agents of those who profit by war. They see to it that these conferences do not disarm or seriously limit armaments. The chief aim of any power at any of these conferences has not been to achieve disarmament to prevent war, but rather to get more armament for itself and less for any potential foe. There is only one way to disarm with any semblance of practicability. That is for all nations to get together and scrap every ship, every gun, every rifle, every tank, every warplane. Even this, if it were possible, would not be enough. The next war, according to experts, will be fought not with battleships, not by artillery, not with rifles and not with machine guns. It will be fought with deadly chemicals and gases. Secretly, each nation is studying perfecting newer and ghastlier means of annihilating its foes wholesale. Yes, ships will continue to be built, for the shipbuilders must make their profits, and guns still will be manufactured and powder and rifles will be made, for the munitions makers must make their huge profits. And the soldiers, of course, must wear uniforms, for the manufacturer must make their war profits too. But victory or defeat will be determined by the skill and ingenuity of our scientists. If we put them to work making poison gas and more and more fiendish mechanical and explosive instruments of destruction, they will have no time for the constructive job of building greater prosperity for all peoples. By putting them to this useful job, we can all make more money out of peace than we can out of war, even the munitions makers. So I say, to hell with war. And this is, as promised, the war prayer by Mark Twain. It was a time of great exulting and excitement. The country was up in arms, the war was on, in every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and sputtering. On every hand and far down the recedings and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. 
Daily, the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms. The proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly, the packed mass meetings listened, panting, to patriotic oratory, which stirred the deepest depths of their hearts, and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches, the pastors preached devotion to flag and country, and evoked the God of battles, beseeching his aid in our good cause in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits who ventured to disapprove of the war and cast doubt upon its righteousness straight away got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams, visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabres, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then home from the war, bronzed heroes welcomed the door, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy and envied by the neighbours and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honour, there to win for the flag, or failing that, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts, and poured out that tremendous invocation. God, the all-terrible, thou who ordainest, Thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort and encourage them in their patriotic work. Bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril. Bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident invincible in the bloody onset. Help them to crush the foe. Grant to them and their flag and country imperishable honour and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he attended to the preacher's side and stood there waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued his moving prayer, and at last finished it with the words, uttered in fervent appeal, Bless our arms, grant us victory, O Lord our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes in which burned an uncanny light. Then in a deep voice he said, I come from the throne bearing a message from Almighty God. The word smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it if such be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import. That is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it be aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. 
Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this, keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware. Lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbour at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbour's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed silently. And ignorantly and unthinkingly, God grant that it was so. You heard these words, Grant us victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into these pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you've prayed for victory, you've prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God the Father fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle, be thou near them. With them in spirit we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with hurricanes of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with their little children, to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolate land in rags and hunger and thirst, sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave, and denied it, for our sakes who adore thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet, we ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love, and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore, beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. After a pause, ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. It was believed afterwards that the man was a lunatic, because there was no sense in what he said. And there you have it. So I hope you enjoy that. That was War is a Racket by Smedley, Darlington Butler and The War Prayer by Mark Twain. I've got nothing more to add really. I, I interjected at various times with things that were, I think, of interest in, in reading this. And perhaps the salient point of all really is that, uh, as I said a couple of times earlier, you know, the same points are being made, the same propaganda is being disseminated. And as I said on a recent show, propaganda is a 24-7 business. Every day you wake up, even before you leave your house, maybe you work from home as well, you turn on your computer, there's advertising everywhere. You turn on the radio. I listen to, to a radio station called Gold UK, just so I can hear lots of 60s music that makes me happy when I'm in the bathroom and having a shower. But as soon as, in between the songs, there's the news and there's the advertising, it's just the propaganda just starts and it's promoting a worldview, and it's really very difficult to counteract it unless you just step out of the game. 
And, you know, we all have to be involved in the game to some extent, but there are choices to be made. This is the point. You know, we can't all end war single-handedly, but we can just make little statements every day. Vote with our dollar, as they say. Anyway, I hope you found that useful and of some value. So thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe. Please share links. Please spread the word. I think this is valuable stuff and uh, worth knowing and uh, worth sharing with others. I'm actually going to leave you today, not with the regular outro music, but with a song I wrote myself called Lessons of War. And it was recorded in 2019 for my third album, Through Life. You'll find all my music, in fact, on my website, anthonyretuno.com, which is in the show notes. And this was recorded with Kester Jones, who also produced it at Alcala Studios in Madrid, and with Ernesto Pestana, who's the, the drummer on the track. Kester and I played various instruments on it. So I'll see you soon for another episode of Life and Life Only. Thanks again for listening and goodbye.
so alone I'm thinking of the past and all the people I've known I know it's wrong but who can draw a line in the sand Now those who even dare to cross the man in command